You'll open your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, I'll begin reading in verse 12 through 16. Jesus is praying, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This morning, when we're considering this ending portion of verse 12 into these next few verses, there's a sense in which we have to recognize we have been really brought in for a moment to uh, matters of the Trinity that we don't normally see. And so to recognize what the Lord Jesus is saying in further verses, we have to kind of conclude the context of verse 12. As Jesus is praying that he would, uh, he would be the one handing them back over to the Father because he had been keeping them and he had guarded them and the Father had given him these people that none of them would perish. He says, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. We want to see this morning... Jesus' concern for God's decree, Jesus' concern for the fulfillment of Scripture, and Jesus' concern for the joy of the disciples. There's a sense in which you have to recognize the Lord Jesus is putting before us in verse 12 and in its ending a real sense of the importance of God's decree. We've been given this picture of the, the Trinity as we've walked through this prayer. And yet here we are given a moment to consider among the Trinity the covenant that was made and the sense of God's decree before time. We've been reading in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 uh, in these previous messages that once again in Paul's letter we're opened up to this decree, the idea of God having a plan of salvation before time began. It's noted in verse 12, that Jesus has a concern for God's decree. He says, the Father, these are those which you have given me. It's not the only time that, he, that we note that, and we've seen it several places in the prayer itself. He says, you gave them in your name, and I kept them in your name. It's a sense which we must understand the Father chose them and gave them to the Son. It's noted, first of all, in the decree, the distinctness of the Father. The Father is distinct from the Son, 
but not different in kind from the being of God in the Son. The Father is distinct, but not different in kind from the being of God. And the Father is distinct, but not different in will, power, and authority in God. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is telling us of the very being of the Father and the very will and power and authority of the Father. That the Father could choose a people and that the Father could give them. This will give you a moment of pause. Even in a Reformed church, we can get a little used to the language and not recognize what's really being said. This is a small glimpse of the fullness or the wholeness or the immensity of the being of God and that in God there is Father, Son, and Spirit Distinct in person, yet one in being. And the Father, before time began, chose a people for himself. You and I choose things every day. A lot of those choices, we think little of it. We make these decisions, we make these choices. I choose to have a sandwich for lunch. I choose that I don't want to eat leftovers. I choose to get in my car and drive to this place or that place. This is a choice of eternal consequence. This is why so many get angry when you talk about the sovereignty of God in this way, that he actually chose a people for himself And he gave them to the Son even before the beginning of time. We have to recognize Jesus is making it clear that the Father has the will, power, and authority to do so. And this is what he did. Ephesians course in Romans as well they make it clear it's not on the basis of any man or any work in the man it's based on God's good pleasure and grace but it's a fact it did happen it did happen the father chose them and gave them the son accepted them and guarded them in verse 12 Eternity passed, the Son accepted them. And there was already work being done that he would keep them. We need to see here the Son in his distinct personhood. The Son is distinct, but not different in kind from the being of God. Father and Son, one in being yet distinct in person or subsistence, working out this covenant in eternity past, 
The Father having the will and the power and the authority to choose a people. The Son having the will and the power and the authority to accept the gift and to keep them. One Puritan writer says Christ's power is omnipotent. The same with the Father's power. John 10.30 None can take them out of Christ's hands because none can take them out of the Father's hand. Therefore, their life is said to be hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 Christ is faithful and true. He died for us and now being reconciled, how much rather will He finish what He has begun? In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom. Think about the sense of who Christ is. The Christ who has the same power and authority and will as the Father. And the Spirit having the same power and will and authority. All in one. Working simultaneously. Doing a work that none of us could even fathom. What one of us could actually fathom choosing the eternal predestination of a soul and person? Do you really want to have that on your hands? It's not like choosing a sandwich. And yet, the Son is there as the one working inside of the covenant with the same power, will, and authority that's in the very being of God, the same power, will, and authority that the Father has. And the Son has the same wisdom. All of the wisdom that the Father used to do His work in choosing His people is the same wisdom that the Son has. They are one in being. Holy Spirit, one in being. One of the Puritans says, Now put all these together. Omnipotent power, speaking of Christ. Unsearchable wisdom, infinite love, and immutable fidelity. And you must conclude... That the godly man's safety is firmer than Mount Zion. Or the earth God has established. For they may be removed, speaking of the mountains. But these, speaking of God's people, cannot be moved. They cannot be moved no more than Christ. And they will stand and fall together. You need the surety and I need the surety of the very being of God to give us real assurance that our salvation is true and real and that it will not fail. If it's simply based on the choice, the power, the will, and the authority of some other being, we cannot be for sure. But when God is the one making this choice, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working out that covenant, we can be assured that this salvation is real. This Puritan was drawing off of Psalm 125. 
in the context of the seven mountain peaks surrounding Jerusalem. That just as those seven mountain peaks surround Jerusalem, so the Lord God surrounds his people. The Son of God, he is that security for his people. Working out the will of the Father from before the beginning of time. You know, we're now seeing through these telescopes more pictures of the galaxies around us than we've ever seen before. We're seeing things about the heavens that we've never seen before. Just the vastness of the heavens is amazing. And yet to think that before time began, in this this little galaxy among all of the galaxies, and this one smaller planet among the many planets, God had a plan that He would put a people there and He would save many of those people for Himself. He worked it out before time began. You can see why it makes our human nature shudder, right? Because what does it say to us? We're not in control. We're not in power. We don't have the will We don't have the authority. It puts us in this place that we are more lowly than we would ever want to admit. As you drive to work in the mornings, you pay attention to those people around you driving. And some of those people, when they drive, the way they drive, they're telling the rest of the people in the lanes that they're more important than anyone else. They have somewhere to be and you need to get out of their way. They're giving you a glimpse as to their mindset. They're saying, I'm important, I'm in control, I'm sovereign of these situations. You need to move and get out of my way. Don't you know who I am? Now if some of you drive that way, I'll leave that between you and the Lord. How small and insignificant are we in the whole of the universe before an almighty God? And yet, and yet he would save many. The Father chose them and gave them. The Son accepted them and guarded them. And the Spirit sealed them and will deliver them. You say, yeah, but the Spirit's not in the text here. But you know what? The Spirit is is spoken of very plainly leading up to this prayer. This is the promise that's coming. John 14 and John 16, the Comforter, this is the one who's promised to come. And the idea that we understand what the Spirit of God is doing in the souls of believers is that He is sealing them and He is the one applying that sealing in such a way that they are ultimately delivered. There is a distinctness of the Spirit. But He is not different in kind from the being of God either. There is a distinctness of the Spirit, but He is not different in will, power, and authority. The Spirit doesn't have a different will. 
than the Father and the Son, that would mean there's great confusion. And if you had a different will, that would mean that God is not immutable, that there's change because there's a, a different will in the Spirit than there is in the Father and the Son. What we see is this same one will, one power, one authority in the one true living God worked out among the persons of the Trinity. And the Lord Jesus is giving us a glimpse of this in these first 12 verses. And he comes to this place to say, there is a decree. And in this prayer, he not only gives us the positive sense of this decree, but he also gives us a negative sense of the decree. When we see the negative sense of the decree, it causes us to do a couple of things. In one sense, it may question us or bring us to a question of how is God working in one will and power and authority? And at the same time, the righteous God is choosing many to salvation. And yet he's also condemning others. This is where many people began to divorce in some way the work of God as though there is one God doing one thing at one time and one God doing another thing at another time. Some divorce it in the Testaments. First of all, if we're going to see the decree of God properly, we have to continue to see the unity of the one God in three persons. They have unity in being, they have unity in decree, and they have unity in covenant. If there's not a unity in the being and in the decree and in the covenant, there's no hope of salvation. But it also means that with that great hope of salvation, there is also a surety that there will be justice for the wicked. In the context of this decree, we also see the sense of the distinctiveness of the persons and the distinctiveness in their work. And yet at the same time, there is a oneness in the power and the will and the authority. Even in the son of perdition, perishing, there is a oneness in this decree. The decree is from the one will, power, and authority in the oneness of God. We have a relatively small amount of biblical information regarding the decree, but the information we have been provided reveals the oneness of the three persons in fulfilling that one will, one authority. And it's the one living God who is one in power and essence doing these things. While the working out of the decree is revealed in and by the three distinct persons, None of the persons is ever working outside of the one being. 
Don't think for one moment because the son of perdition is condemned that somehow the son of perdition is a lost molecule that kind of got outside and did something different or that God himself was not able to not only not control it, but he wasn't able to do something with it to deal with it. The son of perdition is is right inside of the decree perfectly set. I don't say these things thinking that for a moment it won't cause you some pause. These are not easy things to think about. To think of the one true living God, the God who is love, who would also condemn the son of perdition. Well, it brings us secondly this morning to recognize Jesus' concern for the fulfillment of Scripture. Recognize Jesus' concern for the, the decree of God or God's decree. Recognize Jesus' concern for the fulfillment of Scripture. What do you think the Scripture is telling us about in its fullness? Why do you have Genesis to Revelation as the condescended scripture to God's people. It's giving you elements of understanding of God's decree in its fullness. It's giving you elements of the decree and the covenant. This is the whole of the good news and the gospel. And yet even the justice of the wicked is a part of that decree. And Jesus here opens up that for, for a moment and says, and not one of them, speaking of the ones that you've given me, Father, and the ones that he kept and guarded, not one of them perished. And he's specifically talking about the disciples. But the son of perdition. Now the son of perdition is Judas, and the son of perdition is Judas in the sense of understanding that he's not yet perished. But he's about to do that which he was going to do. He's about to be the deceiver, the traitor. And Jesus knows that he will perish. But he doesn't know he'll perish simply because Jesus had a premonition. He knows he'll perish because of the decree. Scripture gives us an understanding of the life of Judas in just some moments. But it's very obvious that Judas all along the way was going to be a one who was to be a traitor. It's interesting how the disciples display him being a traitor in just those moments, a few at a time, that he would be the one who would walk away. And he would do so in a way that he decided to do what he wanted to do. He wanted a little bit of extra money. He wanted his own power in front of these other religious leaders. He wanted to please men rather than please God. Judas all along the way was questioning Judas was living life the way he wanted to live it. 
Judas even at a moment where Jesus was being worshipped was questioning why he was being worshipped and why he was being worshipped when something else could have been done with the money instead of buying oil to worship the Lord Jesus. Judas would be the one to tell of Jesus' place in the moment. He would be the traitor and the deceiver. How did this happen? It happened because of the decree. One of the Puritans, Anthony Burgess, said the son of perdition, quote, was left in his state of sin. Another one of the Puritans said he was, quote, destinated and devoted to perdition. Now, in a way, you may say those two men are saying something different. One of them is saying he was simply left in his sin. And we've heard that said and we've used that phrase at some point around here. That here's the son of perdition left in his sin. The other Puritan says that he was destinated and devoted to perdition. We have to take a moment and think about the son of perdition and recognize that this teaching of scripture will not be easy to think about or comprehend even yet it must be stated both of these Puritans are giving some summation of the truth in a sense think about it if a man was left by God in his state of sin would that not also be a part of the decree He was left to do what his sin nature wanted to do. He was left to do exactly that which the sin nature was inclined to do. This is the problem with the sin nature. This is why we have to understand it rightly. This is why so many get the doctrine of salvation wrong because they do not understand the doctrine of sin. Sin and its nature are the driving force in humans conceived and born on this earth, and it makes them inclined to all sorts of sin, although they may not commit all of them to their nth degree. So in one sense, we can say that the son of perdition was left in his state of sin. And yet on the other hand, we can't say that the leaving of the son of perdition in that state of sin was outside of, of the decree. That itself, in and of itself, was still inside the decree of God. The man's being left to his sin did not happen outside of God's decree, for if it did, God would not be sovereign over the leaving of him to his sin, nor would he be sovereign ultimately 
over the sin itself and in providence. You realize our sin happens in providence, right? Our sin is even a part of the decree and worked out in providence. God is using the sin of others to bring about his ultimate will. When we see these phrases in verse 12, we're brought to a conclusion in these first 12 verses of understanding the absolute seriousness of God's decree and of God's covenant. Some may say, well, this is hard to think that God would have destined someone to be the son of perdition, that God would have destined someone, even in leaving them in the state of sin. Job 21, 30 through 31, for the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will be led forth at the day of fury. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And we can't forget, right, Romans 9, verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, Paul says, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? If you recognize what is taking place in this prayer, this is the prayer of the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, perfect and sinless in every way, praying unto the perfect Father according to the decree made before the beginning of time that even the son of perdition would be destined we have to see this not only in the decree but in scriptural fulfillment He's giving us evidence of the, the decree, and yet that evidence is found right inside of the very Scripture itself. Scriptural fulfillment is directly connected to this whole idea of the very providence of God. The actions of Judas worked out. Even the psalmist, David, in Psalm 41 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. 
David speaking of those who came against him in the atrocities against the king of Israel at the time. And yet this was applied in its sense to Judas and how Judas would treat Christ. The scriptural fulfillment. We see it in the life of Judas and we see it in the life of Peter, don't we? Jesus speaking to Peter that he would be sifted and he would deny him. And yet there was a difference between Judas and Peter, was there not? Judas took it upon himself to deal with his own ways. Judas did not come in repentance before the Lord and Peter did. Even to his death, Judas was still trying to say, I'll do it my way. He and Frank Sinatra had a lot in common, huh? It's sad to think of it, though, but that really is the song and of the world. It ought to be the world's anthem. I did it my way. What a sad thing to think about, that many are singing their anthem all the way to destruction. And yet as they do it, they're not doing it outside of the decree of God. Some will say, why would it happen this way? Who are we to question the holy righteous God as to why he would make some for honorable use and some for common use? Do you have the wherewithal? Do I have the wherewithal to go before God and to say to him, God, you are on trial. I bring you before my personal court and I will now try you and ask you questions as to why you have done what you have done. What one of us can put God on trial? The Lord Jesus doesn't put him on trial. The Lord Jesus is one in will, authority, and power. One in being with the very Father. Let us not forget, though, this scriptural fulfillment directly connected to God's providence concerning the Son of perdition is also concerning the sons of adoption. The sons of adoption were kept in order to fulfill Scripture. Jesus said, I kept them, I guarded them. Speaking of those disciples, and then later down in, in the prayer, He'll speak of those that were, uh, that were not of that group of disciples. Speaking of these Gentiles that were to come in. He's had these people long before time that were his and he'll not lose one of them. He's guarded them and he's kept them and he will go to the cross and his blood will be shed and he will die for them and he will preserve them. That's how Peter can write. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of this darkness into His marvelous light. 1 
For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The sons of adoption are a part of this great fulfillment of Scripture of the decree of God. Do you believe? Are you more interested in pleasing men? Do you believe? Are you more interested in finding joy your way? Do you believe? Or do you love the pleasures of the world more than you love the pleasure of God? For this protection that is provided, Jesus says in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He's saying, protect them here and now. That protection was afforded to Peter, and yet the son of perdition would not be there. It's hard for us, but it's the truth. Did God see something in Peter that that he didn't see in Judas? Was Peter a better man? Peter was saved by grace. Through faith alone and Christ alone. And Judas was left to his sinful state. And what did Judas want? Judas wanted to please men. And Judas wanted to do it his way. And Judas wanted the pleasures of the world more than he wanted God. Thirdly, this morning, it brings us to recognize Jesus' concern for the joy of the disciples. He says, but now I come to you, verse 13, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Recognize here that this decree is working out the very joy of the believers. Through the decree is how we get our joy. There is no joy apart from the decree, and the decree is worked out through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now the Son is bringing that joy in time, bringing it to its fullest realization that we can have on this earth before His second coming. need to recognize Jesus is praying that his disciples will have his joy given to them. I speak in the world so that they may have my joy. What greater gift could there be? then the very Son of God would pray that His joy would be given to His people. What joy does the world really bring you? Ultimately, when all is said and done, what will it really bring? If you have millions of dollars and you stand before God and say, God, here are my millions, what joy will it bring you before Him? 
If you've had the best looking boyfriend or the best looking girlfriend, or you've married this guy or that guy, or you've been able to travel this place or that place, and you come before God and you say, God, here's what I have. Here's what my joy has been in. My joy has been in all the friends, all the cars, all the people, all the stuff, everything I could gain. My joy's been in my bank account. My joy's been in this. My joy's been in that. When you stand before God, what good will it do you? What good does it do for a man... To gain the whole world and lose his soul. Jesus is not saying, I'm here to give them the joy of the world of what they want. He says, Father, give them my joy. Where is... Where is and what is the joy of the Son? It's in pleasing the Father. Do you have a joy in pleasing God the Father and following His commands? Do you really have a joy in that? Or when you read the commands of God and you read the commands and when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll, you'll follow my commandments. Is that drudgery for you? Having to think about the commandments and say, oh, should I do that or should I not do that? Oh, I don't want to have to think about that. Is that drudgery for you to have to think about the commandments of God and how you would follow Him and love Him? Or is it a joy for you to know that God has given you His Word and has given you those things which are pleasing unto Him. And those things that are pleasing unto Him are a joy to you. This is the joy that Jesus has. It's in following the commands of the Father. It's in doing the will of the Father. Do you have a joy in doing the will of the Father? Or maybe you're just thoughtless. And you give it little thought at all. That the very word of God and the will of God mean very little. I'm just going to kind of do what I want to do. It's what I want to do. Just let me have it. I want it right now. I wish I could say my heart had never been there. Boy, I've had so many days. Well, it was only about what I wanted to do. The believer has a joy in Christ because their joy is based in the joy of Christ. And the joy of Christ is to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is to follow His commands. And to follow His commands is joyful not drudgery. And it's not thoughtlessness. Sometimes we'll say, oh, well, I didn't know that was a sin. Well, you need to find out. You need to think about what you're doing. You need to ask some questions. 
You need to get in the Word of God and figure out what is sin and what's not. Don't be thoughtless and then think you can go before God and say, well, I didn't know. Now, thankfully, God has covered our sin through Christ and all of that sin, that which we know and that which we don't know. But I don't have to take advantage of that and just simply say, well, it's covered. No big deal. I'll do what I want. Or if I don't know, I'll still do it. The weakness of the church today is in the weakness of our joy. Our joy is not wrapped up in what the Father has given us in the Son. And in the commandments of God, our joy is still wrapped up in the world. The church will not overcome the world thinking and loving the world. Thinking of the world and loving the world is not our joy. Certainly we have to live in it. But this is not the joy that the Lord Jesus is praying that we are given. Not only is it a joy that is given, and it's His joy, but it's a joy made full. You ever had your favorite drink that you really like, lemonade or Coke or whatever it is? Maybe I invite you over to my house and I ask you, what's your favorite drink? And you tell me, and I make sure that we have it. When you come in the door, I'll say, can I pour you your favorite drink? Oh, yes, Pastor, please. Yeah, that'd be great. I walk over. I grab the biggest glass we've got. The biggest one. And I bought a really big one because you're coming over and it's special. And as I get that big glass out, I take that drink that you love so much and I pour just that much in it. And I say, here. Aren't you joyful? Jesus speaks of our joy being made full and it's made full in knowing the word of God in our hearts to a place that we're gaining the truth day in and day out. The fullness of this joy is wrapped up in the very word of God, the commands of God to us, studying them, knowing them, praying them, longing to live them, to have a full joy. This is not an esoteric joy of just emotion and feeling in the moment. This is a joy wrapped up in the very commands of God. Where are your idols? Find them and hate them and hack them to death. If you think little of your idols, the idols of your heart, you will think little of the joy of Christ. For part of the joy of Christ is being able to see our idols and fight against them. To hate the sin that is in our remaining flesh. And part of our joy is wrapped up in knowing that even when we don't see it rightly, we have an advocate. And if anyone sins, the problem for the church today, we think little of the advocate in following him. 
We always want to have our sins forgiven. But we have very little joy in following the commands of God. When it shouldn't be drudgery. It shouldn't be drudgery for me. It shouldn't be drudgery for any believer. We want our joy to be made full. And the fullness of our joy is wrapped up in knowing more of the Word of God. Even understanding a little bit about the decree that is so hard and so difficult. Don't think lightly of the joy in Christ. May it grow exponentially from the very commands of God that you would love to follow His commands. And when you don't, you have an advocate that you would be forgiven, but that you would also desire to turn and fight against it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. You alone have created all of the heavens and the earth. The stars we know of and the stars we don't. The galaxies we know of and the galaxies we don't. What's at the bottom of the oceans that we know of and that which we don't. The smallest little creatures crawling in the rocks that we know of and those we don't. You, you have created these things. And you've created them in your holiness, for you alone are holy. Who are we to talk back to you? As to who you would save and who you would not. As to how you would save them and how you would not. Who are we to tell you what means to use to save them? Lord, you've given us your word. May we lean upon it with every ounce of our soul. May we find more of your commands. And may we find them to be joyful. We give you praise as we come to the table for the perfect life and death of your son, the Lord Jesus. May we bow before him in confession and repentance of our sin. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.